Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, can you imagine the 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 flexibility, the programmability of our human persona, our human genome? the physical body, the mental body, the emotional body. You know, uh, when I was getting ready for this episode tonight, we've got a great show tonight. I've been thinking about all the different guests we've had on the show over the last decade that talk about really just how pliable pliable our our human form is to use a a really broad sweeping term our form not only physical but mental and emotional and tonight's episode will talk to that but really really (laughs) i'm trying to contextualize the understanding of of what our guests have shared with us. It, it, perhaps it falls into the category of it is done unto you as you believe. Uh, a lot of times I'll quote uh, quotes like that, and you might get the idea that I have a religious connotation to myself, and I don't. Um, I mean, the, the term religion can mean uh, dedicated to a... Uh, um, well, perhaps a savior or a belief system or something like that. I'm I'm very religious in the sense of the human psyche, the human persona. I mean, the the whole theme of this show over the years has been what is it about our human persona, our human genome, that we were not aware of that that wasn't on our radar, so to speak. And I've just been very, very happy and delighted with the depth of some of these shows over the last uh, few weeks, few months. There's really some good shows in the archives. You know, if you're going to commute to work every day or perhaps you're going to travel, there there's really hundreds of shows that where we go into depth about all kinds of things related to the to, to really you to me to to this human experience and tonight's no different the topic tonight neuroaffective meditation and our guest tonight is Marianne Benson we're going to bring her on in just a bit but i suggest and uh, I, I'm kind of, I've been pondering why it hasn't been more mainstream, and maybe it's the tug of war that's going on for the the narrative, the the collective narrative, the mainstream narrative. It, I think it's kind of funny to think that there's some singular narrative that all of humanity is experiencing. 
I mean, get into a, a plane and fly to some remote island where there hasn't been any human contact, some tribe or village that's living completely isolated from the world, and they're still out there. What's their narrative? And how does that compare to our, quote, mainstream, unquote, narrative? There's so much talk about, I like the, the, the term tug of war. There's such a tug of war over the, the common mainstream narrative. So many, it, it's got to be a trillion dollar um, potential if you capture humanity's sense of self, belief system, and start steering it around, that's, I mean, that's why there's such a tug of war for it. It it can be extremely uh, profitable. But tonight we're going to talk about you and me. We're going to talk about, once again, we're going to delve into this human persona, this human narrative, if you will, and um, we're going to look with fresh eyes at just what's possible for you, for me, for everyone. I think as uh, the more and more people embody the idea of just how pliable elasticity um, effect of ourselves, of our brain, of our body, of our uh, health, just really how programmable that is. Um, as stories come forward, I think they're going to start accelerating. And as I've shared, we've had many, many, many on this show over the decades. Really, you are programmable. Your your human experience. Your I don't think there's any aspect out of reach, so to speak, of your human experience. Well, well, Les, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that, and therefore I'm stuck. I don't, I don't think stuck fits anymore. There's um, really just go to the archives and, and peruse through the shows, and you're going to notice just fantastic transformational stories from our guests over the years. And another thing I wanted to share with you before we jump into this episode is I've had a passion for the human persona and spirituality and consciousness and awakening, enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera. Well, We're going to launch online classes. We're going to launch online spiritual classes. And as I've been working on the curriculum for these classes, (laughs) we're very unique. Uh, The human persona, the human experience has some real depth to it. And um, I've I've loved... um, learning about this journey, this this spiritual journey that perhaps we're all on. If you're listening to this show, perhaps for the first time or for the hundredth time or even more, we like to get into it. 
and tonight's tonight's no different. But but keep an eye out for some online classes coming up. I'm gonna I'm gonna really dedicate a, um, decades to um, helping people put some contextualization to the um, etherical realms, the intangible realms of what it means to be a human being. Well, enough of that. Let's get to it. Again, the topic of the show tonight is the name of Marianne's book, Neuroeffective Meditation, a practical guide to lifelong lifelong brain development, emotional growth, and healing trauma. In her book, Marianne reveals how meditation can be used for emotional growth, releasing trauma, and accessing inner wisdom. Drawing on her 30 years of comparing brain development with human development, as well as decades of meditation practice, psychotherapist Marianne Benson shows how neuroaffective meditation, the, the holistic integration of meditation, neuroscience, and psychology can be used for personal growth and conscious maturation. She also explores how the practice can help address embedded traumas and allow access to the best perspectives of growing older while keeping the best psychological attitudes of being young a hallmark of wisdom. She explains that there's a sequence to emotional maturation, just as there is for the development of cognitive or athletic skills, and details the central development processes of childhood and adolescence and the adult stages of psychological development. She then explores the biopsychological effects of meditation on the human brain, including how it affects us at the autonomic, limbic, and prefrontal levels. Now, she lives in Denmark, and it's probably the middle of the night there. Just so you know, Marianne and I recorded this episode not too long ago. So here's the show. Enjoy it. I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Thank you. Boy, howdy. I mean, when I first saw the title, Neuroaffective Meditation, uh, I kind of raised an eyebrow and said, uh, what's <laughs> that? Um, I really like, uh, we're of course talking about your book, but can you just give us some background to the title so we can have some context with it? Yeah. Um, it, it's Actually, I'm a psychotherapist, and um, uh, I started out as a body psychotherapist back in 1980, I guess. Um, and, uh, and somewhere in the, in the 90s, I started working with a colleague of, of mine, um, a, a, a psychologist, and what we were looking at was, uh, was uh, Paul McLean's Triune Brain which uh, has its ups and downs, but the main thing that, that I was really excited about in the concept of the triune brain was that you can talk about having a mature 
part of yourself, or I can talk about having a mature part of myself that uh, is nonverbal and will remain nonverbal until I die. And most of the brain is like that. Most of the brain is actually lives in a nonverbal or, or very uh, minimally verbal uh, space. So um, there's a part of this uh, sense of all of us that's that's actually only sensory. There are no emotions there. There's only largely sensations, impulses. And there's another part which is highly emotional and highly relational. And then there's, on top of that, there's a, a third part which uh, uh, is also a part that, that has words. Um, you could also say there are four parts, in which case the third part still doesn't have words, but the fourth part does have words. But But throughout that discovery, uh, what we also noticed was that, well, people also develop through these stages, and sometimes a stage is missing or it's been it's been uh, interacted with in ways where the person's uh, psyche ha- has kind of gone off kilter. Imagine a house and then imagine that the foundation's okay, that would be the autonomic nervous system. But then you come to the limbic system, the emotions and the relational dynamic and the attachment pattern. And you get into that uh, whole field, and what happens at that point is that the the, the parents that you're interacting with are really uh, upset, or they're stressed, or they're traumatized, or they're not there, or they're they're alcoholics, or there's something really really bad that functions at that level, and that means that you don't learn the emotional we could call them almost instincts that that are healthy for us so then when you start to build the the last part the the uh, the symbolizing and the the verbally thinking parts of us it's like having a roof on a house where the foundation's okay but the walls are all over the place or and they're not actually strong enough to hold the roof so you get this this kind of sequence of development, and and that was what we were working with in the 90s and the the, the 2000s, and um, in the 90s, of course, that was a decade of the brain, and we were reading uh, a, a fantastic author who started working with with emotions and the brain all the way back in the 70s, and his name was Jak Panksepp. So he talked about. Um, affective neuroscience instead of talking about cognitive neuroscience which was kind of the only thing that had really been until then right and that we kind of worked around trying to figure out what to call what we were doing and we thought well maybe instead of calling it neurocognitive which wouldn't fit anyway we could call it neuroaffective so we developed the neuroaffective personality development and neuroaffective psychology, developmental psychology, and uh, looking at the different exercises that you, you can do based on that. And about the same time, in the early 90s, I started meditating. So when somebody asked me to uh, to do a book on, on meditation a few years ago, um, the best the best thing I could come up with was to call it neuroaffective meditation because it carries the... Uh, uh, the insights from psychotherapy, from the psychotherapy that I've done since the 80s, and uh, and but it carries it in this meditative context, in this meditative experience. Well, very nice. Um, I I very much like the idea of the 
um, nonverbal, non-symbolic, so to speak, yeah. aspect of our imprinting. Like I shared before the show started, uh, when I got cracked open and this immense amount of emotional energy is pouring out of my body, yeah. I have I have uh, pondered that moment for a very long time, and there's one thing that really struck me about that moment. I remember the energies flowing out of me, and my ego's like, "What the, you know, who the, <laughs> yeah. what is this?" And the uh, I've shared this on the show many times. Um, but the the anger energy pouring out of me, I'm like, "Who are you?" And the mm. anger's like, I don't care. I'm whoever. Yeah. My relationship with you is up to you. But because I myself, as an emotion, I'm indifferent to how you experience me. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about the, uh, 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 my, my words would be the family dynamic that mm-hmm. our our imprinting gets ingrained in us. And... Uh, I think so many times people go to change their life and they go into this mental symbolic arena of their brain and they're like, well, I can fix it all here because this is where I quote, understand, unquote. And yet, as your book points out, there's a vast part of our uh, neuroaffective persona that is not symbolic. And so if we leave that out of the conversation, if we leave that non-symbolic aspect of ourselves out of the conversation, can we really um, make it to the promised land, metaphorically speaking? I mean, can we really um, uh, become whole without um, entertaining or, or understanding or learning or mastering the nonverbal aspects of ourself? No, we can't. And and that's one of the uh, it's 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 one of one of the big issues in in this work because there are uh, and, and and right now we're mainly in the field of psychotherapy but we could also be in the field of meditation and and what we see in psychotherapy is that that in many ways people that make therapy systems make therapy systems that would work for themselves right. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the thing is that most people who become psychotherapists are already tolerably well functioning. So for them, a lot of more mental strategies will work and verbal strategies will work. And then you start working with people that have never had that, that maybe if we look at it developmentally, maybe they're not born yet. They may be 30 years old and they may also have language, but emotionally and in terms of managing their own their own uh, arousal levels, their energy levels, they're just, they're, they're, they're infants. And, uh, and there's no way that you can build a, a decent roof on top of a missing foundation and missing walls. That's just how it is. So we have created in the last 20 years this huge superstructure of, of different ways of, uh, um, of, of working with people like that because when you look at who is it that, that doesn't get help by all the different wonderful programs for children and adults that, that exist, what you see is it's probably the same 20% that nobody catches because they're too damaged. 
But it's not that they're uncatchable. It's that we're sitting in a place where we have words and where words have meaning and where we do have a memory and where we do have a sense of what our life is. And in from that space, that's what we're talking about with them. And they have no idea about any of that. Nice. Well spoken. Well, now the subtitle to your book is A Practical Guide to Lifelong Brain Development, Emotional Growth, and Healing Trauma. Now, for myself, when I release that that immense amount of energy, I would put that in the trauma category and emotional growth because I know my ego was scared to death of mm-hmm. of anger, but mm-hmm. anger didn't exist in my vocabulary. It was right. like this elephant in the room that mm-hmm. my ego was um, very, very uh, alert to. In other words, my ego would never make a decision that might lead me to anger because it was scared to death of anger. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about healing trauma, uh, so often um, in the uh, spiritual community, metaphysical community, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get some visualization boards and say my affirmations and I'm reprogramming my life, quote unquote. And yet a decade later, we cannot see the traction that we were hoping for and and from my perspective until we i guess i'd say get brave enough or bold enough to kind of go into the the shadow of ourselves and and release and discharge this pent-up uh trauma in our psyche how would you verbalize a healthy relationship with trauma <laughs> Well, I, I think first that the, the main problem with trauma is that you don't get to have a healthy relationship to it. <laughs> but but if, we, if we take a look at what does trauma do in our system first, um, then, then you see two typical patterns. And one is the one that you're describing. Uh, and that's actually a very competent pattern. It's the pattern of, of, uh, uh, of having something that is not allowed for for whatever reason you've been scared of it there's there's a good reason for you to be scared of it uh, we don't know what that reason is right now and it doesn't matter right now but but there was this fear and underneath that there was rage and then the rage emerges as you say out of you kind of explodes out of you and that rage is in its own powerful liberation process but if we look at what was the original problem the original problem was contraction around the rage sure about that one there's the, there's the opposite response as well which is resignation which is collapse so some people don't get to ever experience that they might have rage because anywhere they would get perhaps near the sense of having that. Instead, there's this huge collapse inside of them. Now, that collapse can both be um, just all by itself, which is kind of a, 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 a one of the classic situations that we may find ourselves in. We never got enough contact that there could even be such a thing as rage because it requires that there's somebody there. Right. 
So there was nobody there. So there's just a collapse state. But it could also be collapse and um, this sense of extreme uh, contraction at the same time. And if you have those two things, then you have what's more specifically a trauma. And what you want to do is to find a way to release a little bit uh, or as much as your system can handle of the contraction to allow the lack of energy in your system to revitalize so that you can take a little bit more of the contraction so that you can allow more of the resignation to revitalize. And that's that, uh, that, that interesting point that I work with also in the book where you find the same pattern of extreme uh, relaxation or uh, flaccidity or, or down-regulation at the autonomic level and high-regulation. So you find both the excitation and also the passiveness in uh, deeper meditation states. And that's why deeper meditation states can very easily activate trauma and why trauma can also activate deep spiritual states, which was what you were talking about. Well, I like that. Um, I would maybe even suggest another relationship with anger, and that's um, 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 expressing anger in a dominant way to create a sense of comfort um, or safety because if I'm in rage, if I'm in anger, everyone else goes into a submissive pattern and I feel safe. I mean, there's seven billion people on the planet. The the actual dynamics of any one persona is as deep as sand on the beach. But, um, well, well, that's a curious thing. So, if we um, learn how to connect with and release this trauma. And, and we hone our emotional skill set, how does um, brain development fold into that metric? Well, that depends on how old you are. <laughs> uh, physically or mentally or emotionally? <laughs> uh, well, let's if we start with physically, because that's the simplest version, then you can see uh, what you're talking about, the sense of, of a baby, for instance, that gets really, 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 really furious with mommy. Um, and you can see the enormous uh, amount of rage in that child. It's just not very scary. It's sort of cute, we think, because it's such a small child. But if the same uh, infant has, has grown into uh, a grown man's body, and he's whatever, six feet four or something, uh, then it's not so cute anymore. So uh, what do you do with it? Well, what you want to do with it first is to, to, what you're describing is interesting because what you're describing when you talk about safety is also a status relationship. Right. Okay. So the status relationship means that when you're that angry and other people go to low status behaviors or subservient behaviors, then you are the top dog for that length of time. Right. So, uh, so that's the dynamic that you're talking about, which is also what children start to work with around that limbic stage in particular. Uh, we're probably born with it, but it, it shows up more, more clearly from age two years and on. Um, yeah. Well, the, um, it would seem that if I'm a, an adult man, 
and I and I find safety in in uh, anger or rage. I'm I'm looking for that safety because there's some element I'm afraid of within my own psyche. It would seem like um, perhaps to unravel that within themselves would be to um, kind of let their guard down and let whatever the element of fear is, whether it's a conscious thing or not, um, to learn some other mechanism to feel safe without having a dominant persona, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And and it's true that there's uh, often under rage, uh, there's often either a sense of loneliness or a sense of fear or a sense of grief that we don't want to touch because it's too painful. Um, and that some of the things that, that have been done with that, interestingly, have to do with training animals. So if you look into some of the uh, some of the systems that are functioning, for instance, in the United States, you see uh, people that are that are in jail that are learning um, how to train, and also veterans that are learning how to train dogs and train horses, and that that's really really beneficial to them because they get this very simple and very trusting response from the animals. So there's, in a way, nothing to nothing to try to master, nobody to try to terrify, uh, but just the building of relationship, which is really what that level is about. A relationship that you can trust and where you can love. Well, very nice. So, how do you put a... How do you put a metric to this? How do you put a measuring stick to this? Because if I take a big step back and I look at the uh, the, the dynamics of humanity on Earth, can I make a more general statement? Um, the uh, um, there's people that come along that kind of break the uh, break the mold. Um, I, I don't care what you think about the person, but there's a person walking around on the planet intending to colonize Mars. And he's, uh, he has, I'm talking, of course, about Elon Musk. He's building electric car factories, battery factories. He's, he's changing the face of AI. And again, I'm not talking about his persona. I'm talking about his metric. Because here's an, a single individual with over a decade or two, easily $10 trillion of effect on the collective consciousness. When when we look at your material, the practical guide mm-hmm. to lifelong brain development, emotional growth, and healing trauma, mm-hmm. how, how do we know that we're measuring ourselves? Not that that's always a good thing, but how do we know that our the metric we're looking at ourselves is realistic to our our true potential. Well, I I don't think we have any idea of what our true potential is. So as long as we don't have that, we we don't we a metric is impossible. But what we do have is uh, a, a decent uh, uh, online uh, assessment form, and the assessment form goes through. Uh, you can s- score. Uh, nine one of nine points on each of five questions per each of three layers 
and that will give you a decent sense of uh, of high or low functioning, except you can't do it yourself. You have to have somebody else with a decent sense of who you are and who also knows the system doing it for anything like a reliable result. But that has something to do with what level of human maturity uh, do you have and where do you have uh, weak spots, you might say, in your system, which we all have. Uh, so that's that's one way of seeing that, but it obviously doesn't tell you anything about what where you started, less because where you started was with this sense of of something imminent, something much more than feelings and thoughts and sensations, and that's a different story altogether, and that's where the meditation comes in. Well, nice. So let's look at the 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 brain side of this meditation is related to that somewhat. We've talked to many people on this show about the elasticity or pliability or or timeless programmability of our, our brain development. Um, when you talk about lifelong brain development, if, if we've lived in a relatively static mindset, we've kind of settled into adulthood and we've clicked a few decades off and we've We've got a, a sense of self that seems comfortable to us. Mm-hmm. How, how do we go about in in cracking that open to allow for new, vibrant um, brain characteristics to come into our experience? Um, well, I guess the first question is, why would we want to? I mean, if we've spent a number of decades in a comfortable rut, uh, which is sort of what it sounded like to me, then why do we want to change it? Because um, the ideas that that, um, present themselves to me and then the Mm -hmm. effect I have with them are not congruent. And, uh, And if I look at the patterning of my mental demeanor, I see attributes of of hesitancy or um, guardedness that prevent me from becoming more of who I am. So would that relate to a sense of longing? Uh, no, uh, not per se. Uh, a curiosity of potential, I would say. Because like yeah. I, sh- I shared, there's a man walking around on the planet with with vast ideas and he's bringing them into effect and I have vast ideas and I don't have that bringing it into effect and so I wonder what it is about my demeanor and certainly the mental arena mm-hmm. has stigmas that impede that fulfillment. Mm. So for one thing, uh, of course, it's it's easier to to uh, bring huge things into effect if you have a few trillion dollars that you don't exactly know what to do with. So that's one aspect of it is 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 a background resource you might say, in terms of the brain. But uh, the other thing, if we look at at uh, what are we trying to accomplish, and uh, before you were you were talking about uh, the sense of aging and getting to a certain point and wanting to be able to to um, have. Um, to change, to to have a deeper experience yourself, perhaps, but also in the world, and I think that uh, that you mentioned one of the two drivers. The the one driver is curiosity, 
um, the curiosity needs to be intense. It needs to be burning. It needs to be encompassing in the same way as as that uh, uh, as that quality you described in your original experience. And the other thing is longing. That there is a feeling of having you know gone through ten years or twenty years or thirty years or forty years, and then to to uh, to have a sense that ah nothing much is happening. What uh, what what am I supposed to be doing for this to change? And a, a feeling that there's so much more in the world, which is true. There is so much more in the world. So where is the quality? that I remember, for instance, from my childhood of opening my eyes and there's this amazing new day with dew on the grass and just an unending, enormous amount of time. So that, that quality, so longing for something like that, those, those dynamics, or longing for God, longing for the sense of, of being protected, longing for the sense of being held by something greater, longing for a sense of belonging here instead of, like many people, feeling that we don't belong here. Huh. That we are, that we're somehow an accident and even a bad accident. <laughs> well, curious. That's, uh, that's interesting. But um, over the years on the show, I've really learned that... Um, my age is none of my business. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to do anything. I don't feel like I'm on the hook for um, I've got to pull this off. I don't feel obliged. I don't, I mean, there's no requirements per se. You can go up, you can go down, you can tread water, and the choice is always yours. So for for me it's uh especially with the show over the years i just see the dynamic of the human persona and it just fascinates me to no end and mm-hmm. here i have my own hey looky here i have a, a persona i get i get to have this experience i'm just i'm just fascinated by um the the hidden subtleties um like your book talks about of our persona and how there's uh, value or jewels or um, rewards, so to speak, to to delve in and and uh, discover and understand and perhaps become intuitive with and bring it into an expression of ourselves, so to speak, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, growing up is a curious thing. When when you were talking about uh, sort of the larger aspects of the world, I was thinking about, um, or I was reminded of two things. One is the the sense of the neuroplasticity of the brain, and one of the things I was thinking about with that, apart from the fact that it's much more plastic than we ever knew it was, but uh, but the other thing is that that uh, this development of wisdom. And um, and there's a research, a whole research uh, that's dedicated to to discovering what wisdom is and the differences in the East and the West and all. But uh, I love one of their uh, one of their um, favorite statements is that that uh, wisdom comes with age, but sometimes age comes alone. And <laughs> I like that. 
Mm-hmm. It's a nice one. It's a nice one, and that's that's very true. That that wisdom comes with age, and what comes with age is the capacity to see, as you're describing, to see uh, things that we wouldn't see normally when we're 20. Uh, we're seeing different aspects. We're seeing different possibilities. We're seeing the whole instead of the little pieces. We're not thinking in a linear modality. We're grasping a totality. And the brain naturally develops in that direction. So there's a better and better chance of, of catching that. There's also something else which is not so hot, which is that your, our brains are not as neuroplastic when we're 60 as they were when we were 20. But they're still somewhat neuroplastic. So that's sort of the the balance point. Well, nice. So um, I want to talk about your book some more. So if I'm a listener to this episode, and mm-hmm. here we are talking about a book called Neuroaffective Meditation, what's mm-hmm. the, uh, of course, uh, I have to show up for what the book is telling me, but what's the before and after effect of this book? I mean, how how might I see myself uh, changing or growing as a result of this book? Um, well, from the people that have uh, responded, and, and a number of people, it was out in German before it was out in English, um, but uh, the people that have responded, many of which are, are from Germany, but some of which are from Holland or, or from Denmark, um, have said different things. And some of the things that they've said, which I was hoping for, was that that it has helped their meditation practice because they discovered a different aspect of meditation than they had had before. Uh, some have discovered that, that things that they didn't know about or that they have worked with and that haven't really, that have never really gelled for them, exercises or, or psychotherapeutic uh, processes, suddenly made sense. There were some, suddenly some things that made sense, such as that that uh, their meditative practice could land them in trauma, or that it was it's necessary to to drop into the body when you're working with meditation, just as it is when you're working with trauma, for the simple reason that trauma, uh, like the nervous system, has been around ever since we were fish. So it's not a very verbal space; it's a very non-verbal space. So there's this uh, importance to that, and. Um, so, so those are some of the things that I would expect that a number of people get out of it. I know that some of the people have also been been very uh, struck with the last uh, one of the last chapters, where I, I kind of it's, it's a reflection. Um, but many years ago, I, I developed a, a model because I found that many people who worked with psychotherapy or many people who worked with uh, meditation seemed to withdraw into that world. And not be very interested in in society, not very interested in the climate, um, not very interested in 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 sort of the the things that we share, you might say, as human beings. Um, and uh, and one of the things I did was to develop a model where where it becomes clear that our responsibility holds both ourselves and our own personal development to become what we can become. And uh, I think one of the most beautiful uh, things that we can become is to develop this capacity for for seeing the world and seeing ourselves in it as part of it. So, so that's one piece. 
um, another piece is taking care of our world. So there's responsibility for myself. There's responsibility for my world. And the third is the responsibility for for continuing to connect to and listening to the sense of of something higher, whether it's a it's a deep ethical principle or whether it's a sense of God or a sense of Allah or a sense of of uh, a lineage in in some in some tradition. So uh, I think there's a I believe a Jewish statement which is that sometimes we find that the only hands that God has is at the ends of our own arms. And, uh, Beautiful. I like that a lot. Well, let's go into that a little bit more. So here you are, here I am, here are the listeners. Um, if our hands, metaphorically, are the the hands of the divine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, mm-hmm. how do we... Um, if if I've never seen myself that way, in what way do I honor that? In what way do I, I mean, how do I um, have more grace, more, um, I was going maybe, maybe the word's nobility? I don't know. Um, how do I show up for that, I guess? Mm-hmm. I think that the first part of that is is in uh, in the meditations. I have a series of meditations in the book, and uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them have to do with connecting to the world in a in a deeper way. And uh, I think most of us do that. I also think that most of us don't think about it, but we'll stop and and admire a sunset. And very often, when we've admired the sunset. Uh, we'll be reminded of something that we need to hurry up and do, so we'll hurry up and do that. But one of those, one of the ideas is actually to not hurry up and do whatever it was we needed to do, but to stay with that sunset, because it gives us a gift, and the gift is grace. And what evokes in what it evokes in us is awe. And that's, uh, in a certain sense, part of the part of the gift of working with uh, spiritual practice is that you are constantly surprised by by the giving of uh, of this uh, deeper uh, presence or awareness that is that seems to be inside of everything when we when we notice it and our answer to that is an emotional one and usually a nonverbal one and it's it's generally awe it doesn't have to be the biggest awe in the world but it <laughs> it's <laughs> but it's a sense of, you know, you walk in the forest here in Denmark. It's it's uh, it's really cold, but the uh, but the first of the spring flowers have been up since January, and you watch them and you watch them day by day. And there's this awe when they start when the little green sprouts start coming up through the ground. Right. There's this sense of awe when suddenly we can go out in the afternoon and it's still light. It's not dark. Uh, there's this sense of awe when the when the the oxygen bubble around the North Pole opens and fresh oxygen flows down over us sometime in February. So when the when the the blackbirds start to start to sing also in the beginning of January. So there's this whole sense of noticing uh, all these gifts that the world gives us and to value them instead of getting stuck in our mobile phones. Nice. Uh, I'm so I'm so delighted you 
brought grace into the conversation. It's it's quite evident that uh, 2020 and beyond has been a bit of a karmic tsunami for the collective. People are very anxious for mm -hmm. a sense of uh, predictability, a sense of um, trajectory, so to speak, in a in a narrative that is, would more fully honor who we are, that would more fully support who we are. And, I mean, when I commute in traffic, I see a lot of anxiety on faces or a lot of um, remorse, a lot of heartache, et cetera. Yeah. And, and what people long for, I suggest, at least one of the components that can have such a nurturing effect is that of grace. How, mm -hmm. do, how do we make ourselves more vulnerable or open to that sensation of grace as we go through our day? Well, the the thing about grace uh, is that uh, uh, you have to open to that, and uh, perhaps the best um, person to speak about that is not me, but Brené Brown. Um, and what Brené Brown talks a lot about is is uh, vulnerability, and uh, vulnerability she relates to shame, and she says that you're not going to avoid those two things. So vulnerability is going to uh, cause pain for us, and shame is also going to cause pain for us. But being willing to feel that and being willing to be vulnerable and be vulnerable to other human beings uh, is also to be vulnerable to grace, is also to be vulnerable to spirit. And uh, that's, I'm afraid, just how it works. Well, now... Um... I don't know if you have a practice where you work with people, but if you were to uh, uh, take from your perspective of doing this work for uh, over the course of your life, what are some uh, more prominent ways w we get hung up or stuck in our psyche that that you're recognizing, and and perhaps. Um, uh, 2020 and and beyond has uh, brought some depth to your perception of that. In in other words, s since you uh, swim in this pond, so to speak, it gives you a perspective of of the mechanics of of our human demeanor. In in the collective, in the everyday rank and file people. What's some of the more more common ways we get in our own way? I think that there's a generic one, and I think it's uh, it's social. So um, as you speak, I'm thinking that you're probably meaning the the people in in the Western world. So we're talking about uh, uh, Northern Europe, uh, perhaps all of Europe, and we're talking about the U.S. and we're talking about Canada. Um, which is a different story than what they get stuck with in 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 China, which I also don't know much much about. So that's good. But, point. Good point. <laughs> yeah. So um, and yeah, I have worked practically with people for many many years. Uh, I think that that the main thing that we get stuck in is uh, sometime between 1900 and today, so for about the last 120 years we have developed a very, 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 very um, 
uh, intricate and powerful and magical, really, society. And uh, at the same time, we've also paid a price. And the price is that we no longer have a feeling that we belong anywhere. Wow. And uh, and in that not belonging, uh, we're also we've also learned something. And one of the things that we've learned is that we have to never be satisfied. And that's not a personal dynamic as much as a social one, which is why it's so universal. You can't get people to buy stuff if um, if they're satisfied with what they have. That's really simple, right? It's, right there's nothing yeah. strange about that. So you have to be dissatisfied to keep on buying. And to continue buying is the only way to continue to uh, get better and better um, economic uh, circumstances. And our whole economic uh, context is, is based to give us better and better economic circumstances, which means that we have to keep uh, pulling out more and more stuff from the planet and that we have to sell it to people who have to be dissatisfied. So how do you get people to be dissatisfied? Well, one way is to, to keep individualizing them and keep separating them from everything else. And that works really well. It's worked really well for these 120 years. So we have a lot of people that are more and more individualized, that feel more and more frail, that uh, feel more and more uh, um, status-oriented, more and more scared, more and more unhappy with what's happening, feeling less and less in control. Wow. And the isolation of the pandemic has only compounded that, I would imagine. Well, yeah. well, uh, I love your book. I I think it's a, a wonderful um, uh, collection of perceptions that would help so many people. Can you give us some takeaways um, from the, from this interview that your book might touch on? Um, just uh, things we can do, or perhaps a new perception of how how we experience things, uh, just some takeaways for the audience. Uh, I'm putting you on the spot, you know that. (laughs) Yeah. Having uh, having discovered that I can be put on the spot, yeah. (laughs) Well, I I think that... That might be that comfort you're you're trying to avoid. I mean, the discomfort you're trying to avoid. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, no, I I think that... um, there are, I mean, there's this whole principle that uh, in one sense to to deepen ourselves is also to allow that we are vulnerable to the world. Um, and that, that that's not as dangerous as it could be, which is kind of the same thing that we discover when we fall in love. <laughs> we become vulnerable to another person, but it's not as dangerous as it could be. So, so that's one aspect. Uh, I, I think that uh, another aspect which is worth looking at is uh, the similarity between uh, between the the spiritual deepening and and uh, and the trauma states. Because one of the things that we sort of expect is that we're going to get uh, with with spiritual practice that we're going to get. Uh, uh, we're, we'll all be enlightened, and how long will it take? Well, maybe a month. You know, it's, it's, and it's, not, it's not like that. <laughs> so, it, it, and it totally is not like that. So, so what happens? Well, what happens is that we deepen, and as we deepen into a spiritual practice, we're basically slowly or quickly, but we're unpacking 
uh, some of the emotional responses, just as you described in, in your situation, and those emotional responses kind of fade out, they become less important, and we have more and more free energy. So what does free energy do? Well, it invests itself in the next thing that is in our system. And sometimes that's another trauma or another another personality issue. Sometimes it's a collective dynamic, but it doesn't go away. It's not like we ever get rid of pain. So there's something about learning, I think, to live with pain. And it's interesting that some of the wisest people that, that I have listened to in my life or read uh, in my life seem to know a lot about pain. Pain is something that they really get. So there's something about this... Uh, this sense of of uh, um, discovering the I guess the vulnerability of 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 uh, what is painful, but also to uh, to remember or discover the sense of awe that comes when a flower opens, because I couldn't open it and uh, you know it opens by itself in its own time, and I guess one more thing which is basically a sense of memory. That, that we all get caught in loneliness because our societies are caught in loneliness. And as we get caught in loneliness, to remember that we don't have to be alone, that we are grown out of the world, out of the planet, just as much as any leaf, just as much as any flower is grown out of the planet. And we will be dissolved into the planet again. Beautiful. Very well said. Well... Now it's time to shine the light on you. Share with our audience how they can get your book, what services you offer. Are those services in person or over the Internet? Help our audience understand who you are and (laughs) how they can connect with you. Where are you tickling? Disembodied voice on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm well, as, I'm assuming you have a body. We're we're jumping to conclusions. I'm kidding. That was a joke. Oh, you're assuming that. Okay. Well, um, I have a website that might help. Uh, I'm not in the U.S. I am in Europe. I'm in Denmark. Um, I do workshops in Holland and Germany and Poland and Switzerland uh, this year. Um, yeah, I think that's sort of and Denmark, of course. And uh, those are the most uh, important things perhaps to overall uh, to know um, I can be found my on my webpage which is Mariana Benson uh, Marianne is spelt in the French way and Benson is B-E-N-T-Z-E-N dot com Mariana Benson dot com and um, it's possible to see what I do there um, the book uh, is out in ordinary bookstores. If it's not, you can ask for it. It has an ISBN number. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it in Barnes & Noble. You can probably find it in other places that I don't know about. You can buy it on Kindle. Um, and uh, the work that I do, mainly the work that I do, is uh, is about uh, either learning about this neuroaffective development, which is something that I teach primarily for professionals, um, the other thing that I do is I have uh, I have the occasional meditation workshop. I actually have one in Greece this autumn in October. So um, yeah, it's uh, possible to go out on my website and see. I've written a ton of uh, articles and a few books and stuff, so you can look at that there. 
if uh, that interests you. I'm mainly uh, uh, these days uh, a trainer of uh, of professional uh, psychotherapists, and they're the ones that uh, that wanted me to do meditation workshops and also write a book about it. So that's how that all happened. Does that give you a sense of who I am and what I do? It does, but as we've mentioned on the show, we're just scratching the surface of who we are. <laughs> well, and uh, time can fly by when you're having fun. Uh, Marianne, I want to thank you for being our guest on the show tonight. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Mm. Thank you so very much. It's been a real pleasure to be here. It's uh, it's been really lovely to to uh, interact with this completely different uh, uh, perspective that you that you bring and that we can kind of throw back and forth a little bit. So I really enjoyed it and thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. We've been talking with Marianne Benson and the topic tonight is the name of her latest book, Neuroeffective Meditation, A Practical Guide to Lifelong Brain Development, Emotional Growth, and Healing Trauma. What a nice episode. Um, She's quite the gal. And uh, just for those of you that might not get the French spelling of her name. I'm going to repeat her website and spell the whole thing out. Marianne Benson, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E-B-E-N-T-Z-E-N.com. What a fun show. <laughs> like I said in the beginning, I'm, I've, I've said this many times, I am just so flippin' happy to be uh, a host of a radio show of this nature. <clears throat> I think my whole life I've been fascinated by the, the human persona, the human dynamic, if you will. I remember... When I first got my driver's license when I was 16, I drive about an hour to the airport, and I and not to see anybody, not to take anybody, but just to watch people. I was fascinated by watching people. I was fascinated by what what makes people choose what they choose, and that was as a that was as a teenager many decades ago. And here I am now more fully immersed in the same thing. You know, uh, it's hard to comprehend how much we have to discover about ourselves. We, it's impossible for us to exhaust our potential. Because in every moment, we can have a new inspiration. We can have a new vision. We can, we can change the dynamic of our life. And uh, it, it takes some, I suggest, it takes some effort, especially if you're brought up in mainstream um, humanity, if you will. They don't really teach us 
about having a multidimensional soul shoehorned into a physical body. And then the day we were born, we didn't have an ego. We didn't have an ego. And we grew our ego based on our, pretty much based on our family of origin. And then we moved in. (laughs) We moved into our ego as our sense of self. And, well, uh, just look at history, and that'll give you an idea what what that can do. <laughs> hey, I want to thank you, the listener, um, for showing up for yourself. I want to – I've written books. I've had this show, um, and we're starting the online classes. We're going to – we're going to – farther down the road, we're going to have New Human Living uh, a membership where I don't I don't ever want to tell you what you should think or believe or do. I I think there's an organic way for us to grow who we are and uh, I don't think it serves you to push. I'll point a finger and I'll comment, but what you decide is is that's up to you. In order for you to be authentic, I mean, down to the bones authentic, that has to come from within you. And I really, I really honor and respect that, that aspect of you. The tagline for New Human Living is pure, authentic you. Well, pure is an energy thing. You can think of it as a viscosity of consciousness. Your karma is has viscosity, has a denser, thicker viscosity to the point of really uh, stagnation. And purity is to clean out that that karmic viscosity and, and restore purity. Purity within your persona. Purity is not righteousness. Purity is an energetic attribute of who you are. But the second word in the tagline is authentic. And like I said, that comes from within you. And um, authenticity gives you endurance. When, when you're authentic with yourself, you don't accumulate fatigue anywhere near as much as when you're inauthentic with yourself. So pure, authentic you. If your soul's been showing you a big-ass vision for your life, maybe bigger than your ego has experienced up to now, you've come to the right place. Because <laughs> that's what my soul's doing to me, and I, I gave up arguing with it. I'm like, all right, all right, oh, yeah, all right, we'll do that, we'll do that. And that's part of why I'm starting up these classes and membership program. Well, anywho, um, thanks so much. Um, thanks for showing up for yourself, really. And uh, until next time, always a pleasure. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.